and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today, we will be discussing the 2021 movie, Dune. Hello and welcome to History in Reverse. My name is Caroline and I'm here with my father, Richie. Hello. And today we're going to be discussing the brand new movie, Dune, that just came out a few weeks ago. And for this podcast, we're not going to be discussing too much beyond the, we're not going to be discussing anything beyond the story that's told in the movie, right? We're not going to like spoil the ending. Um, Though we might clarify some things with knowledge of the book. But uh, yeah, this is going to be a review of the movie, which was uh, really good. But before we get into this movie, Dad, do you know about what, there was a previous, there's been previous adaptations of Dune, right? All right, well, yes. So, well, I think maybe what we should say first is just your, our history with Dune, the book, right? So we both had read the book before and mm-hmm. I've read it. I was an adult already, but I've read it. I enjoyed it. And more recently, I listened to the audiobook from Audible, which is a really wonderful production. So if you... If you want to hear another version, I, I would recommend it. Mm-hmm. And what about you? Um, so I read it in high school. And I so I remember when I read it, it was probably a little bit above my reading level at the time. I think I read it in ninth or 10th grade. And I remember the main plot. I remember Paul and what happens with Paul pretty much. Uh, and I remember some things about the Fremen, um, but I don't remember tons of details and I'm currently rereading it now on um, what we're hoping to do. Our next pod, we keep threatening to do a podcast about Dune. <laughs> we're gonna, we're probably gonna fill it up into parts because it is large. Uh, but I'm, I'm rereading it now, and it's, it's definitely, it's, I, I might as well be my one novel complaint about the book. He just throws you in to this narrative that's full of like fake words and like fake science fiction terms and just expects you to follow along. And it's, it's quite difficult to follow at points in the beginning, and but it's, I, it's, it's we interesting. We should discuss some of those points so that people will understand a little bit better what happened in the movie. We haven't read the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. The, the other interesting thing about the book is that because everything happens in the, des- in the desert, um, mm-hmm. he lifted a lot of cultural elements and language elements from uh, desert cultures like Arabs and mm-hmm. Bedouins. Some of the stuff that, and the movie actually did the same much uh, mm-hmm. some of the stuff reminded me of uh, you know one of my favorite authors is saint zupri uh, I'm, I'm not pronouncing it right he's a he was a french writer and a pilot and he wrote a book called wind sand and stars and part of the book was about his adventures in, in north africa in the desert because he was a male pilot in the like 1920s 1930s so he spent a lot of time embedded in that culture and mm-hmm. and a lot of the the Kind of things that pop up in Dune are very similar to the kind of stuff I've, I've read in that book. You mm-hmm. know, like like treating water as something super precious, for example. You know, one of the things I remember when I was younger and read the book was having so much anxiety all the time reading it because of the lack of water, and being like, "But what if they run out? But what right. if they don't have it? But then what happens?" You know, like that was like my biggest concern reading the book was, "But what about the water situation? We need to get this taken care of." <laughs> It was like worms, whatever, spice, whatever, but the water guys, we need to really do this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, the, it definitely does use a lot. Um, 
it draws on uh, Middle Eastern kind of desert culture. And the the and, funny part was when you when I read the book, and there was a glossary of terms in the back, and and I always thought it was funny when the, the one of the terms she was trying to explain was jihad, and mm -hmm. by the time we got to seventies and the eighties and the nineties, you didn't need the glossary to find out what that meant. Uh, I, I'm not, not sure when the book was written. I have my computer here so I can Google things. Okay. 1965. Okay, that makes sense. That that makes sense. Okay, so we'll get into more details about the book when we do our, our book episodes about Dune. But let's, so I was saying that before there's a, there were previous adaptations. I think I've seen one of the previous adaptations. There was an adaptation in the 1984, I believe. And mm -hmm. as an exercise in something, I... <laughs> looked up some of the clips that um, corresponded to some of the events in the movie from the old movie, and boy, was it bad. <laughs> uh, I remember it not being good. <laughs> uh, remember the character of, of Gurney Halleck? Yes. You know who played him in, the, in the, uh, that other movie? No. Who plays Captain Picard? Uh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. So Patrick Stewart played Gurney Halleck. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the other funny thing, I don't know if you remember this, Dad, uh, with a little bit into a family history of our relationship with Dune, the franchise, was um, there's a video game, a Dune video game for like the computer from like uh -huh. the 90s. Right. And it was actually quite a fun, it was like a little strategy game. Chris and I both played it. and But we played it because one of our family members gave it to us. And it was Uncle Andrew who gave it to us for Christmas. Did you know that? <laughs> no, no. I remember the game vaguely. <laughs> uncle for, for our audience, Uncle Andrew is my uncle, who is a, a Catholic priest. And he, I don't know how, he got his hands on the video game Dune and thought, yes, these children will like it. But he was right. <laughs> we did. <laughs> it was very, it was like, Chris and I still talk about that, <laughs> that we got that from Uncle Andrew. <laughs> but anyway, onto the actual, onto the actual content. So the movie, it was good. Yes, I liked it a lot. It was good. So, in fact, I... I, I prevented myself from reading any reviews until so now. So did I. I did the same because thing. Because I, I, I don't want anything. to be influenced one way or the other. But mm -hmm. a friend of mine just saw it over the weekend, and who's a guy who's into science fiction, and he said he really liked it too. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very good. So this is the part of the podcast where I say nice things about Dune. I thought overall it was very good. It was a good movie, solid adaptation, very truthful to the story. I think if anyone wants to know, like, how do you do exposition in a movie this is a prime example because every time they have and i have notes i have extensive notes from my rewatch every time they ex need to explain a new technology and there's a lot of new technologies need to explain it's done very organically in the script and very clearly in the story so um by way of example early on in the movie there's they show those body shields right the thing right. where you press there's like a it's like a thing where you press a button on like your wrist or whatever and your body gets covered in the shield that's the shape of your body and it, there's like a little practice fight between paul and one of the other characters yeah, like and you see that when they touch each other and the touch is like a safe touch the shield is blue and then when they touch each other and it's a dangerous touch the shield is red and it's like in a matter of seconds just watching that bit of fight, you you as an audience member fully understand 
that brand new technology without having to have anyone stand there and say like, you know, this is the shield. If you activate it by pressing your wrist, it covers your body. You know, like it's a very natural, uh, organic way to well, show the audience. The important thing about the shield is that like a bullet would bounce off it. Mm-hmm. But if, if you wanted to kill somebody, you had to use a knife and move it slowly through the shield and they could, you could penetrate. So that was uh, kind of... And they draw the worms, right? The, the shields draw the worms. Yeah, I mean, the shield... Okay. Yeah, well, so maybe we should talk just about the, the, the large plot of this thing, just so that people have some idea. Sure. <laughs> so the movie opens... Oh, gosh, now I'm trying to remember the order in which the scenes happen. The movie opens with a Fremen girl who... I don't know, do we learn her name in this no. movie? Uh, well, no, Chani, I think, at the very end. Her name is Chani. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think we get it at the very end. With Chani kind of talking about the history of Dune, um, which the actual planet name is Arrakis, and uh, how her people basically have been subjugated by... Um, they say that... They say Harkonnen weird. Right, okay. They say... I say Harkonnen, they say like Harkonnen, and I'm, I'm offended by their different pronunciation, but they, they maybe they're right. I don't know. <laughs> Basically, her people have been subjugated by this great house that came to Dune to harvest the spice that's magically naturally occurring on the Dune. Certainly no explanation ever as to how that happened. Right. So and, spice, yeah. spice is the MacGuffin of this whole story. Yeah. Well, we don't know. We don't know yet where spice comes from. So We know where the spice yeah. comes from, but we only know it only occurs on Dune. And it's necessary right. for space travel. So right. that's why it's super expensive. And the, the larger structure is that the, there's a galactic empire. There's an emperor who has some political machination he wants to, to do. And mm-hmm. there are individual houses, right? Harkonnen yeah. is the house of Harkonnen. So it's kind of like a country or it's more like, is it like Game of Thrones or something? I was actually going to compare it to A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the book series Game of Thrones is based on. And it's funny because side side story at work, I have one friend who's really into Dune and he and I talk about Dune all the time. And I have another friend who's really into A Song of Ice and Fire. And she and I talk about that all the time. And I'm trying to get each of them to read the other series because I'm like, they're they're very similar. Dune is A Song of Ice and Fire in space. A Song of Ice and Fire is Dune, not in space. Because it's the great houses, there's an emperor, there's an imperium, there's this sort of political intrigue, there's this fighting. There's the, you know, the magical destiny of somebody. You know, it's, it's very, they have very similar kind of underlying um, themes that actually, do, maybe we can get to this later, is that Dune kind of reminded me of the Lem stuff we, let, we read with, uh, was it Lem that did the short stories that were kind of like folktales? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. Really, yeah. it's, sort of, it's sort of a medieval story Right. In space. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So the, the I think the movie begins with this girl talking about the people who exploit Arrakis. And basically, she's like a native to, to Arrakis. And Harkonnen are, uh, are the outsiders who came to basically take the spice and mine it and as much as possible and uh, basically exploit the, the native people. Right. Mm-hmm. And... At, one, at the beginning of the movie, uh, Harkonnen received order from the emperor to leave and hand Dune over to the house of Atreides. 
And the Harkonnen had been there for, I think they said 80 years. Right, for a long time. It was a long time, yeah. Right. And the implication is, and this is actually, like I said, it's presented very nicely in the movie because it comes out from just conversations mm-hmm. that the emperor seems to feel that the, they're getting too powerful. Harkonnen mm-hmm. are getting too powerful and he, would, he wants to kind of have the set the houses against each other so that if they fight themselves, they won't have enough power to do anything to the emperor. And mm-hmm. House of Treaties is on another planet called Caladan, which is this rather nice Scottish looking planet with oceans and, and mountains. And Duke Atreides, his name is Leto Atreides. Right? Mm-hmm. He has a son named Paul Atreides, who at the beginning of the story is uh, 16 years old. Is he that old in the book? I feel like I thought he was younger in the book. Uh, fifth, I think said so 15. I mean, I don't think they okay. say how old how old he is in the movie no but in the movie he looks like he's in his late teens he's yeah like he could pass yeah, so for 16 years he, he looked yeah. about right and the interesting thing about this that that the mother his mother jessica mm-hmm. is not actually married to atreides she's his mm-hmm. concubine and they don't make it very obvious in the movie i they, they eventually say that but that you know at one point and and duke says i should have married you yeah and uh and again, thinking from, from Book's point of view, when they explore this a little bit more, the reason he didn't marry her is because um, he was looking to do some kind of political marriage to combine some houses together to, to have a bigger house. Now, the kind of usual stuff people used to do back in Europe, or mm-hmm. in the old kingdoms or whatever. But Mother Jessica is kind of special. Right, so Mother Jessica is, is part of this order called Bene Gesserit. And I've always thought that that name sounded like Jesuit. What is Jesuit? Jesuit is, is a Christian order of monks. It's, it's a... Oh, yeah. Oh, it does sound like that. Oh, that's interesting. So I always thought of that. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's an order of women who have uh, these interesting skills, including this thing called the voice, mm-hmm. which, is, which is kind of hard to portray in a movie. Although they do a pretty decent job here. And the, in the movie from 1984 was horrible. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, um, so basically, I, I, I'm really interested in the Bene Gesserit because it's kind of like a science fiction interpretation of the political power women used to have in like a medieval kind of setting where they were never, they were never the kings, they were never the warriors, but they were like oftentimes the power behind the throne. Right, they were right. like the people doing the order. political. Yeah, they kind of had magical, not really magical. They're not. They're not. They're not supernatural, but just simply like exquisitely trained. And mm-hmm. according to, only girls could really be trained and have those kinds of, and and handle basically beneficent power. So the voice was a way of talking that you could basically compel somebody to do something. If you said just said it just right, the person would just do it there wouldn't mm-hmm. be any, you know, they, they, would, they would essentially lose the will to re- mm-hmm. resist you. And only because this was only girls, only women were supposed to be in this order. But mm-hmm. that is Jessica. What? But whoops, then there's Jessica. And Jessica and has Jessica, a son. Jessica loved Hadouk, right? So she was really deeply in love with Duke Leto. And so he was in love with her. And he wanted a son very badly. So the Bene Gesserit said, you're going to have a, child has to be a girl and you know they, they could control it as, as through the magical powers 
but she disobeyed and she had a boy. And she started training him in some of these ways of, of Bene Gesserit, which is a bit of sacrilege. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, on the voice, I so my friend at work who saw it, saw it, the movie in um, like a big like IMAX theater. And um, he told me that. So when, when the, we saw it in the theater, um, the voice was kind of like this distorted, like it's like they took a voice and they, la- they layered it on top of itself. Right. So the sound right. was kind of like louder and deeper and a little more intense. And what my friend told me was that in the IMAX theater, the odd, the sound of the voice actually was so like loud that it shook the seats. Ah. So the voice was like really intense and, the, and that was like, oh, that's a cool effect. That's really neat. So that that's kind of, I think, a, a physical way to portray to the audience right. what's psychologically happening to someone who's being affected by the voice is that they're, they're being shaken into an action or away from an action, whatever it is you're telling them to do. The, the Bene Gesserit, uh, since they were kind of ancient order, they were spreading myths and stuff around the galaxy, right? And, you know, there were prophecies. So what they did, they basically went, when Bene Gesserit spread around the different worlds, they would you know, start essentially lived religions or whatever, so mm-hmm. that people might expect something would happen. And then because they kind of planted that idea when it happened and it's, why were they doing this? In the confines of this movie, I, we don't know. Right. As of, as of now, it's a, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a big science fiction mystery. Right. Maybe we'll find out in the second half. <laughs> so anyway, Duke Atreides gets the order to go to, Har- to, to Arrakis to take care of spice mining. Mm-hmm. And before they go, one of the mother superiors from the Nigeria comes to visit. Mm-hmm. And she wants to test Paul, right? So in the beginning, Paul seems to be having these dreams. And yeah, so, so magical dreams are definitely a, con- a recurring uh, thing that happens. And, and Paul is having dreams of people and things he has not seen before. Right. You know, people he hasn't met, but they're recurring. They're like, he keeps right. seeing the same girl right. who's played by Zendaya. <laughs> he keeps seeing Zendaya in his dreams. Zendaya? And What's the actress? That's the name. That's the actress, yeah. Everyone was very mad because they thought Zendaya would be in more of this movie and she was only in like eight minutes of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one thing I've seen on the internet about it. Oh, well, part <laughs> so, yeah, he keeps he keeps having magic dreams and the the Bene Gesserit mother comes to uh right. to see what's her. up with that. Yeah. Right. So she yells at Jessica about you know her having a boy and training him in the ways and she has this test she wants to give him. She called, she, she wants to know if he's a, a human being. Right. It has to do how he, he reacts to certain things. Right. And, and before, we get, before we get into what exactly happens in the scene visually, the, the, the movie has a lot of beautiful shots and a lot of really interesting things that they did with costumes and layouts and camera angles and such. And the, this particular scene I like a lot because it's, you know, Paul enters this First of all, Jessica comes and gets Paul out of bed and is like, you know, yo, get up. Like, we got to go do this thing. And Paul's like, what am I doing? And she's like, I can't tell you, but she's obviously very, very nervous. Right. And she puts him in this room and there's this big, long shot of like this rather large room. And there's a seat off to the side. And that's where the Bene Gesserit mother is sitting. And she's wearing like all black, but she has this, this headpiece that's like a tall headpiece. It's like two or three feet straight up from her head. 
and her face is covered. So you get this. Yeah, she has a veil. So you have this kind of distorted image of a person. It's like, it's like proportionally off because the head is like long up and down. And it's just like a very uncomfortable image. And it's good because you're about to be very uncomfortable in the scene. So it's like a nice lead in to the like something's up, but you can't quite put your hand in. It's like, that's a person, but it's not quite a normal person. And it was a very good use of costuming and visual design for them to get that reaction. Because I know when I first saw it, I was like, ooh, like that's, that's weird. That's interesting, but it's weird. And it was very uncomfortable for Paul then to have to approach her. Right. Um, and he, well, he, he walks into the room and, and, you know, she says, come here and he hesitates. Mm-hmm. And then she uses the voice on him. And it's like, you know, he just almost like floats over there. Yeah. And then he's like, how dare you use the voice on me? Right. And she's like, I have a box. Let's play with this. So she has him put, uh, she's like a little black box, a sneaky little black box. And she's like, put your hand inside. And basically the test is. Well, um, he says, what's in the box? And he says, she says, pain. Yep. And she says, she tells him, you know, an animal that's trapped will chew, you know, chew off its arm to escape. Mm. But a human could overcome this. Right. So. Right. And this is the test. Put your hand in the box. And then she, she t- takes out the, what's that, Kamjabar? Oh, gom, the Kamjabar. Kamjabar, yeah. which is like it's a poison a... needle. She, mm-hmm. she, she puts his hand in and she pulls out this needle, puts it right next to his neck. And she mm-hmm. says, if you pull your hand out, you die. And then the pain starts. So you can see like pain on, on his face and he's to make some yeah. noises. And, and, and this was part of the, the visual that I wasn't as impressed with. So it's it's very difficult to to show to really express pain to an audience through a visual medium because if you're not cur- if you're not currently in pain it's hard to necessarily empathize with how much in pain the person is on screen mm-hmm. i've always found text to be a little bit better of a way to do that what all I, what i was thinking in terms of the pain was cuz they show like his face is in pain and he's sweating and they show like some flashes of fire they throw some flashes of like the desert in there and stuff like that well, but, he, because he, and if you read the book, in the book, he imagines mm-hmm. him being on fire. Right. Well, that's what I had expected to see. Like, if they had shown, like, his hand burning and, like, the flesh peeling off, I think that would have been a better visual to understand what he was feeling. Otherwise, we just kind of got this, like, scattered images of, like, heat and, like, him being in the desert again. So I, I didn't think it was, I, the movie was very good. This is me nitpicking, but that's what I do. So uh, I think that it could have been clearer, but yeah, anyway, he gets like, he has this like little moment where he has pain and then uh, he survives. Basically he doesn't take his hand out. He stands it and she finally stops and she calls Jessica back in and Jessica is very relieved. Yeah. Cause she knew what was going to happen. This is a test that all the (laughs) Bene Gesserit go through and she knew that he very well could die. She mentions this uh, something cataract briefly which mm-hmm. has, I think I was only like one spot in the, in the, do you think he's a Quisage Haderach? The Quisage Haderach, Quisage Haderach. Yeah, I know what word you're saying, but I don't know how to say it. <laughs> yeah, so this kind of is like implying there's this kind of like prophecy thing happening. Uh, it like, might be kind of special, more special than we thought. Yeah, but the, the Bene Gesserit mother does not think so. She calls, she says Jessica's foolish for having been so been basically been so prideful to think she could 
give birth to this like great prophet. So the only uh, the other thing that that reminds me of it's it's while they were still on Caledon, how they um, talked about the grandfather briefly, because that was mm-hmm. more of a thing in the book. The grandfather died fighting bulls, which was yeah. his hobby, and and the bull killed him. And the way they presented it was kind of cool. They had the shots of the bull head of the bull that killed the grandfather. They had a little sculpture showing somebody bullfighting. And I think once in the very beginning where, where Paul and, and Lido were out, out looking over the ocean before they're going to leave for um, uh, Arrakis. And he said, you know, you have to be, you know, his father said, you have to be responsible. He says, what about grandfather? He died fighting bulls. <laughs> yeah. Fighting bulls, so, you know. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. And no, I was trying to see what, I feel like the bullfighting thing might be more of a metaphor, but I haven't quite unpacked it in a way that makes sense because they, they show it throughout the movie it's like not just in the very beginning it's well, because that, was, that was the symbol right so the head of the bull was an important symbol of the house of trades yeah but the whole dying from i don't know i feel like there's something else there i haven't quite unpacked it i'm working on it i'll get back to you <laughs> um so the other thing i wanted to mention at this point because that was in the scene when they were signing up all the documents what's his name Hufia meant that Right. So they don't really explain this in the movie, but in the Dune universe, you were not allowed to have computers mm-hmm. and, and it was illegal to have artificial intelligence because machines were not allowed to think like humans. So mm-hmm. instead, what they need, if they needed calculators, they were like people who they called mentats who were trained to do all this stuff in their heads. Yep. There's like a little I... scene, and I don't know if you noticed that when they signed the papers, Duke asks his mentat, uh, his, his name was Hufia about some numbers and he kind of his eyes rolled back and he you know calculates calculating yeah. calculating and he gives him the answer yeah it's really cool it was a really cool addition it's like that his eyes go white and he does a calculation yeah. and then he gives the number out no it was that was really cool like that's another thing where i'm saying the the exposition and the story the the actual like telling of the story was very organic you know right it wasn't super necessary for the movie to know that they're not allowed to have ai but you understood from that scene that this is a person who calculates big numbers, right? And that's what that's what you needed to understand the narrative. Yeah. Right. So I thought I thought that was great. Before we leave Caledon, I did have a couple of notes. Um, just a couple of strange things, like the paper signing scene you were just talking about when he signs like the paper from the emperor or whatever. He seals the document with wax and his ring. Well, that's that's like old style, you know. But it's the future or something, right? Like I feel like we're doing like interstellar travel and we, we got to all get together to like put a wax seal on it. So there, that's what I was saying. It's like very medieval in a lot of ways. Right. And I also thought it was funny because you and I always point this out. Uh, there's a number of scenes where Paul is in his room basically watching YouTube videos about Arrakis. <laughs> <laughs> Although YouTube and, holograms. Yeah. yeah, he's watching YouTube holograms about Arrakis. <laughs> and it's like just him sitting in the room and there's a voice and it's like, the Fremen of Arrakis do X, Y, Z. And it's, again, it fits very well into the narrative. It doesn't feel forced or anything like that, but I just thought it was kind of right, funny. So let me just and, he sits, and he sits down and reads a book about Arrakis in the beginning. <laughs> so I thought that was good. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Well, the structure of the book itself, I don't know if you, if you, you know, each chapter in the book uh, is a, like a long quotation from a history of, of Dune and, 
what happened there by princess, whatever her princess, who was the daughter of, of the uh, emperor. And she apparently wrote, in the future, wrote the history of Dune, mm-hmm. and then they would have quotations from yeah. that. So Fremen was the name of the race of people, or the, of the people living, the natives of, of Dune. And come on, Freeman, Fremen. Are you are you saying it's an obvious name? I am shocked that you're saying it is an obvious name. What what? How can you say such a thing? Fremen is very very creative. No, it's a very obvious thing. It's extremely obvious. (laughs) But you know, it works. Uh, Whatever. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's I mean, just like the whole. I think you know the concept of calling these people emperors and dukes and barons and things like that. You know, they, if there ever was a future interstellar society of some kind, it wouldn't be using these kind of terms. It wouldn't be this kind of... It, Duke Leto even refers to, to Arrakis as his fiefdom at some point. Like, right. no, they wouldn't be using those words. But, you know, those are the, they, they adapted it from the book. And, that, you know, that's what was in the book. I think there's a, a number of decisions they made that could have been different. You know, that's it's fine. It's... Neither here nor there. So let's go to Arrakis. All right. So we get to Arrakis. The one thing I do want to note is throughout the movie, the movie is extremely monochromatic. Like the colors are very, like, they're very the same. Like Kaladin's very kind of like gray. Arrakis is kind of like a muted kind of tan and and black. There's like a lot of black. And I don't know. I don't know that I like that choice so much because it, I think you and I both commented when we first saw the movie that we thought the beginning was a little bit slow, like in terms of pacing. It was, it, it picked up, but the beginning was a little slow. And I think part of that was that visually, and especially watching it a second time, visually, it, it was interesting visually because there were so like beautiful shots and stuff like that. And the camera work was good, but there was not a lot of color on screen. I think the most color we get is like Jessica's dresses. Every now and then she rolls out with like a blue dress. Right. And it's like really pretty, but it's largely monochromatic or just black and white and tan. And I don't know that I don't know that I like that. Yeah, no, I agree. And yeah, and even Caladan was like very muted. Yeah. But like when they get to Arrakis, for example, and they land in the city, they're fly- like they're flying over the city. There's this big shot of them flying over the city and all the buildings and all of the buildings are the same color and texture. Well, again, this is if you look at, at cities um, in, uh, in the desert areas like in Africa or Middle East, they're, they're often, especially the older cities where they're built from mud or the same materials. So that's why. I don't know. This city, though, this was a metal city. And it's like I, I can go to like Jersey City or Newark and see more variety than I saw in Iraq. And it's like it's, it's a question of city building. You know, it's like when you cities grow over time. So naturally they have. Different materials. One, one of the problems they had there is that they had to be basically not out, not be out during the day because it was too hot. Right. Yeah. So. But still, it's like, you know, if you had that city developing over an 80-year period because that's when the Harkonnens were there, I would expect it to not be as oh, but cohesive it's not, it's as not that the Harkonnens, Harkonnens developed it. It was the city was probably there. The Fremen already lived there in the cities, and then just when Harkonnen came in, they built some extra stuff. But you're right. It's it's all like the color of the sand. Um, yeah, it gets it gets to be a little like white girl in Africa. You know, it gets a little bit like 
you know, oh, it's the, it's the desert. So everything is tan. It's like, well, no, actually it would probably be more diverse than that, but you know, it's a brief shot, but it's something I noticed throughout the movie. Right. Um, so they get to Arrakis and when they got greeted by the local people, mm -hmm. they started remembering about uh, some prophecy. Yes, they started chanting, I wrote it down, Lisan Al-Gaib, they were chanting. Right. Which is the uh, then explained as um, the, the, out, the outworlder that the Fremen believe will come and save them or lead them to heaven or the Holy Land or whatever right. uh, it is. So that's yeah. kind of the first time we get an explanation that there's a prophecy applicable to the Fremen and that maybe Paul fulfills that prophecy because they're, ch they're chanting at him. A, yeah, a woman coming with a son. Mm -hmm. I also like when the, the scene they, when they walked from the spaceship to the ornithopter, it was very uh, Middle Eastern, like they, they kind of dressed up Jessica War and then and, mm -hmm. like the wind and stuff. And the ornithopters were really cool. Yeah, so they're like, they're like, they look like giant fireflies, basically, right? No, dragonflies, sorry, dragonflies. They look like giant dragonflies, and they are so cool. But I mean, the tech in the movie is great, and it's like very yeah. well depicted. So then we get it, we, you know, they start to settle into Arrakis. There's the really interesting scene where Jessica has to pick a handmaiden, and uh, she's given, you know, a bunch of handmaidens, and she picks one and dismisses the others, and then. The handmaid's name is Shut Shutout. Shutout. Shutout is her name. Yeah. I, I wrote it down from reading the book. So. Yeah. And Jessica's, you know, very perceptive because she's a Bene Gesserit and she says, I know you have a knife on you. And she does have a knife on her, but it's a gift. And it's a super special fancy knife. And what what is a super special fancy knife made out of? It's called a Chris knife, and it's made out of the tooth of, of the worm. Or did she did she call it a maker? Uh, she calls the worm. Oh, I forget now the, the, their word for the worm. Whatever the word their word for the worm is, she called it. I meant to write it down earlier. Should we just explain but, the worms briefly? Yeah. So let's explain the worms. So Dune has a lot of sand, a little bit of water, and a lot of worms. Right. So the idea of a worm is that the sand is like a huge, huge ocean, and these uh, giant worms kind of live in the sand. They kind of swim through the sand and eventually pop up. And the, the attracted by sound, any rhythmic sound attracts them. And the huge, they're like huge. They're like so huge. And so like rhythmic sound, like walking over the sand will attract a worm. You know, spice mining will attract a worm right. as we see. And they are, they are big boys. They are by definition, big boys. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, was always wondered with Dune though, and maybe there's a better explanation for this in the book, the worms are huge, mm -hmm. but Dune, Dune doesn't have like a lot of stuff for them to eat. So like, how do they live? They sift sand, I don't know. I don't know, maybe, they, I mean, that could be it. Maybe they're sifting, sifting sand. Um, so yeah, so having the tooth of a worm is a big deal. It's very, it's a very, it's like a holy blade to the Fremen. Right. And so it's a gift that the handmaiden gives to Jessica. Jessica right. And we also, at this point in time in the movie, we've seen a few times this sign language thing. Did you notice the sign language thing? Yes. It, I don't recall it, it being anything like that being in the book, but this is kind of normal that uh, some armies have where they have like hand signals. Or mm -hmm. sign. So apparently the Atreides family has its own sign language that they can communicate by just small hand movements. 
Yeah. And, but it's not hand movements. Like they're not obvious. It's not like, like American sign language where your hands are up right. in front of you trying to communicate. It's sort of supposed to be sneaky. So like you would, while your hands down at your side, you would move your hand in a certain way to communicate a message. And like Jessica uses it with Paul, Paul uses it with her. The handmaiden uses it with the guard in that scene. No, not, which... not, not handmaiden. It's the Jessica who uses it with the guard. She tells the guard, prepare for violence. I thought it was the handmaiden using it. No, 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 no. It was Jessica. Oh, okay. I got really confused. It looked like the handmaiden's hand. Oh, okay. I got really confused because I I was like, why would the handmaiden know how to do this? Okay. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. So, yeah, but that's like an interesting, I like that detail. That was a a good science fiction y kind of thing that I like. We see the overly wasteful palm trees that I disapprove of. They have palm trees outside the palace for no reason and somebody has to order them yeah and that what they say like each palm tree drinks like the water of five men every day right and i'm like that seems very wasteful and makes me feel very anxious can we not do that (laughs) um paul again watches videos on the internet live what well while he's watching his youtube videos YouTube holograms of Arrakis does an attempt at his life. Yes. So he's watching TikTok of uh, Fremen dancing. <laughs> and <laughs> and while he's doing that, <laughs> he uh, there's a little, what's it, what they call it? The little... Um, hunter seeker. Hunter seeker. It's a little electronic device that flies into his room and almost stabs him. And I couldn't quite understand that scene, how it didn't stab him. Right. So the, the, the way it works, this is explained in the book, it detects motion. Mm-hmm. So when he, he first saw it, he stopped moving and this thing couldn't find him. Mm-hmm. And then somebody stepped, you know, the Fremen servant stepped into the room and it went, turned around to attack the, the, the Fremen servant because it went towards the motion and then he grabbed it and killed it. Right. But it wasn't automatic. It was actually a... Uh, remote control mm-hmm. right so what happened was they found that there was a controller person who, who was controlling this thing was basically buried in a wall mm-hmm. waiting for them to come so that they could you know try this so lito got very upset yeah he was a little bit mad and but the chief of security who was the mentat as well he was he was ready to resign and he told, he told him, don't be stupid just fix it Yes. Let me get a couple different scenes on Dune that, that were visually very interesting. So you remember the scene where the Bene Gesserit mother meets with the Baron and they use the silence tech? Yeah, that's like from Get Smart. It's like the that's from what? Get Smart, remember? Yeah, <laughs> the Cone of Silence. Okay, that's they use Cone of Silence. <laughs> uh, it was really cool in the movie. I hadn't made that connection. <laughs> Well, that was on Harkon in the world, right? So it's because they had to go back. So she went there and now they were basically- they have, some, they have some like vague, mysterious conversation about like, you know, kind of f- foreshadowing what's going to happen in a few scenes, which is that the Trades family is going to get taken down. But before that happens, there was the trip to view uh, spice mining. Yes. And that was the, the you know, when you're in a, in a little- Orno, what's it called? Orthocopter? Ornithopter. Ornithopter. You're a little ornithopter. You're watching the spice mining and everyone says, 
don't worry, the worm is coming, but we have something that'll carry out the spice matter in plenty of time. Everyone's fine. Man, the serendipity of that thing breaking at that time. Wow, what, what are the odds that our main <laughs> characters would be present <laughs> for that disaster? <laughs> well, so before we begin to that, we have to about still suits. Yeah. What, is that what they're called, still suits? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they're fancy. What are still suits? So still suits, that, that's actually invention of Frank Herbert for, for Dune. So this is, if you want to survive in a desert, if you basically, you, don't, you want to save all the water that, that is in your body. So whatever you perspire or breathe out is recycled. So still suit is the suit that you put on that basically captures all the moisture that leaves your body in the normal process of living and recycles it. So, you know, including your breath and stuff. So they have like this thing up the nose. So when you breathe through the nose, Mm-hmm. and they have a little tube that you can just drink the water mm-hmm. uh, and that's how you can survive in the desert and it's a, those suits were invented and, and made by the Fremen so you have to know how to put one on mm-hmm. so they Duke, uh, Duke Paul uh, Gurney Halleck who's like the, the weapons master are going to, to and a couple of the people are going to view spice mining and they're going to find ornithopter but because they're going to be out in the desert they want to put the still suits on. And Paul just knows how, how to put it on properly. Right? But it's magic. It's, he it's just magic. knows. And, and <laughs> it's a prophecy said that, you know, that the one would come who would act as though he was a native. Yeah, he would know, and, he would know our ways. So I think it's like something like that, yeah. So there is the, the planetologist who lived there and the book was part of the clients. And I, li- I like the way they cast it in the, in the movie because they, they cast a black woman as the, as the person. I, mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the one who noticed it because she, she knew Fremen ways and stuff. Oh, wait, we forgot an important bit about the Fremen. What color are their eyes? Oh, yeah, Fremen eyes are <laughs> glowing blue. And mm-hmm. this is from basically getting high on spice. Yeah, don't do drugs, kids. Well, Your eyes will glow blue. Glow blue. So the, this woman, what's what's her name in the what's I could I couldn't Clines. figure her name in the movie. Klein. Klein. Klein's. Klein's. She. So her eyes are blue. Yes. Are glowing blue. Yeah, because so, she's basically lives with Fremen, and she's the planetologist, the imperial planetologist who. Right. So she's supposed to. She's supposed to be from the Imperium, and she's kind of supposed to be from like the Emperor, but she like pretty obviously is like aligned with the Fremen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's kind of like, you know, the whole time they're like, aren't you with the Imperium? And she's like, yes, definitely with the Imperium. And so it's kind of like, but the the glowing eyes. She was like a guide actually. So so when they got an ornithopter to go see what, so the way the spice mining worked is that they had like this huge machine, like a crawler, I think they called it. Yeah. That would just spice basically kind of tend to lay on, on the surface of the sand and you can just kind of ride over it and collect it. And there were these other machines, kind of balloon looking things called carryalls that actually carried these things to the spot where the sand was, where the, the spice was, so they collected. Now, because they made lots of noise, they would attract worm. So they mm-hmm. expected that the worm would come when they uh, doing this so that the carryall was always nearby somewhere and would come and pick it up before the worm ate it. Mm-hmm. In, in the machine, even though it was huge, the worm, worms were even bigger. 
Yeah, worms were way bigger. Yeah, can easily eat it. So, like you said, in this uh, in this um, instance, so they they observing this you know, from the air, observing that the, this mining happening, and they, I guess they like flag a bunch of drones around the carry around the around the harvester so that they know the worm is coming. So they say, okay, there's a worm coming. It's going to be here in like ten minutes. So they're like, okay, we have we can you know collect some more before we have to go. And then when they're ready to go, they call the carry-all. And this, in this version, and I think it might be slightly different in the book, the carry-all comes and tries to hook up, to pick up the, the harvester and the hooks break. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. it, part of it is they've been complaining about the equipment left by the Harkonnen for Atreides that's kind of not, not in the best shape. Mm-hmm. Right? So basically the worm is coming, there's, there's no other carry-all nearby. And there's like 20 guys in the, in the harvester and the worm is going to eat them all. Mm-hmm. So Duke says, no, not on my watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got to save them. And like during this, this whole like rescue thing, there's like some guy who's like, we can't leave the, the harvester with all the spice. And it's like, this is the hill you're going to die on right now? Extra? Uh, there's like a couple of lines about that. Um, yeah, but yeah, says, so basically. You know, what the hell, you know. Yeah, the Duke's I'm like, you go, like, shut up, get in, get in here. Right, so the Duke lands, they land their um, little ornithopters, and they start getting the guys off the, the thing, and they're coming out, and our, our boy Paul is like, I'm going to help. And he goes right. out, and he starts directing people, and he gets hit with a big old wave of fresh spice. And then he gets high in the desert. <laughs> and he starts having his regular visions. And he kind of just sitting there and Gurney has to come and grab him. Now, I'm yeah. not, I don't know if that scene actually occurs in the book. Um, that I'm not sure. But anyway, so they, they lift off with everybody. They had to throw some stuff out of the ornithopters because they're a little bit overweight. And just mm-hmm. as they lift up, you can see the worm come and kind of this huge thing of sand sucks yeah. the harvest and just eats it. And what's really cool about the worms too is that when they're, when they're coming, like when they're almost there, the sand starts to shake, like it vibrates and it becomes kind of like quicksand. So you see them standing there and then the sand shakes and their feet kind of start to sink in. Right. So it gets even harder to run away. And it like has this like low rumbling noise. And then it's a big giant mouth with lots of teeth and it, it eats everything. And so that's the first time we see a worm in the movie, but not the last. You um, forgot to mention one of the character who, who has uh, some roles to play, Duncan Idaho. Oh yeah, Duncan. He's played by Jason Momoa. Right, good Duncan. He made a good Duncan. Yeah, he was good. Uh, so basically, there's like uh, there's the master of arms, is Gurney Halleck, and Duncan Idaho is like a swordmaster, and they mm-hmm. both uh, tra- have been training uh, Paul in in uh, the ways of knives and, and fighting. And, and one of the things that's interesting about Dune is you know, because of the invention, like you mentioned earlier, of these suits and the suits being really impenetrable by bullets, the author very cleverly removed like gunfights as an option. Like everything has to be hand-to-hand, right. which kind of also brings it back more into that sort of medieval feeling as right. opposed to like modern warfare. It feels, you know, it's like hand-to-hand sword fighting basically pretty neat, which weird, weirdly enough, we get to see a lot of. <laughs> So I think the next, like, the next big thing that happens, I mean, there's like a, like a couple more scenes when Atreides is still in power, but 
is the betrayal. Soon, soon enough is the betrayal. Yeah. And so basically there's a deception and. Right. So talk, we didn't talk, mention the doctor. So this doctor, what is his name? Oh, I forget. Well, it doesn't matter. So the doctor basically, he gives everybody sleeping pills, even though Paul doesn't take it. Yeah, Paul doesn't take it. Actually, there's one thing I wanted to mention that's in the book that wasn't in the movie, but it's mm-hmm. when uh, uh, the Atreides first arrived at uh, on Arrakis, Duke Leto says, you know, we have to start putting, putting out papers and information about the Atreides and how well we're doing. And he says, how will they know if they are governed well if we don't tell them? <laughs> All right, so first we have to set up our social media account. Get yeah, somebody to run it. <laughs> Make a Twitter. <laughs> There's lots of good quotes like that throughout the book. Very, very yeah. Not political. Um, That's really funny. So the betrayal happened. The 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 doctor kind of engineers. He kills some guards and he turns off the shield around the whole city. And he basically paralyzes the duke, right? And yeah. says he's going to deliver him to the baron. To the Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen is, is, is the, the head of the Harkonnen clan. Mm-hmm. And, but as the Duke is lying there paralyzed, he changes his tooth yep. and says, This tooth is full of poison. If you bite down on it, your mouth is going to fill with this huge poisonous gas. So you can just breathe it out and it's going to kill everybody around you. So maybe, you know, you can do something for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, do- the doctor is doing this because his wife has been taken hostage. By the Harkonnens. Right. And they said, if you bring us the Duke, you know, if you help us with this, you will release her. And this is also, it also is implied that the Emperor was kind of in on this as well, right? Because they right, sent right. the fancy troops. Right. So, so the Emperor lent them some troops. So the doctor disables Leto and then, you know, disables the shield. Then we get big flashy battles, which are really, they're nicely done. They're nicely yeah. done. There's like some ships Not firing. It wasn't too much, I didn't think. So it was a lot of hand-to-hand combat, and there's a lot of small scenes of, like, uh, Duncan fighting, gets to fight in the hallway and stuff, which is really cool. And, like, the fighting on the stairs, where the two armies kind of meet on the stairs and are are pushing each other and everything like that. Um, And then Jessica and Paul get away. Um, No, they don't get away. So, no, Duncan gets away. And I think part of the agreement between uh, Baron... Harkonnen and the Jesuit oh, right, right. Was that he was not to hurt Jessica and, and Paul. Right. He was not allowed to kill them. Right. So Jessica and Paul get captured. Right. I forgot about that part. And Harkonnen said, Barnes said, yes, we're not going to harm them, but you know, Arrakis. <laughs> you know, what are you gonna what are you gonna do? We're gonna drop them off at the first at the first the you know warm stop outside and then you know yeah. what Let nature take, <laughs> takes it court takes it course. Right. So, um, so actually, my favorite scene in the movie is when Jessica and Paul are captured and they're in. I right. keep forgetting so the, the name of thing. The ornithopter is that ornithopter. It? So they put them into ornithopter, and a couple of guys are going to just take them out and drop them off in the desert and let nature take take its course. Right? But it's very important when they're in the ornithopter. Paul is tied up, but Jessica is tied up and gagged. Right, because they know she's a Bene Gesserit witch. So they, right. they, that's what they call they her, yeah. So they know, they know about the voice. And when the two of them are tied up, they're signing to each other. And Jessica tells Paul, there's three men in the ornithopter with them. And one of the men is deaf. So the voice wouldn't work on him. 
then Paul, you know, they obviously don't know that Paul can do the voice. So Paul tries, doesn't work at first. And then he does it. And Jessica is signing to him, like, you know, find the right pitch, like, come on, you, know, you can do it kind of thing. And he finds the right pitch and he's able to command the, one of the men to take off his mother's gag. Right. And then Jessica uses the voice. And that's the first time we see her, the first and only time we see her in the movie using the voice at like a, to its full potential and like how it's supposed to be done. Like up until then, we've only seen Paul try to do it. And I think it's awesome. I love that scene. And she basically commands them to untie them, to I kill each other. The first one to kill the one who's mute. Right. Which She's, does, yeah. And untie me and then. Yeah. And so they take control of it because uh, Jessica is able to command them to do all those things. So then they get away. <laughs> Right, but they're still in the middle of the desert, right? So what happened mm-hmm. was, I don't know if you noticed, the, there was the little pack left in the ornithopter with the little symbol of the doctor. Yeah. And yeah. he left them just some stuff to be able to survive in the desert. So they, exactly. they, uh, they have this tent, like a silt tent. So you can, you can build a tent and go into it and it'll collect all the water that comes off your bodies and... and recycles it so you can you can survive yeah it's actually really cool because the tent is like it's like in a sand dune so there's like a sand blaster that lets you like kind of like move the sand out of the way and then you kind of like put this tent in in i imagine because in the morning when they come out of it they come out of the dune so maybe maybe the sand moved over the tent right but it's yeah it's this magical water tent that gathers your perspiration and everything so you don't waste any water and then, do you, do you remember what else is in the pack? The very important item. Well, there was the ring, the Duke's the ring. ring, right? So, the Paul, Paul, and and Jessica realized that the Duke is dead. Although she was pretty sure he was. And, yeah. Uh, Paul is having an emotional breakdown. Yeah, and there's also some spice in the tent, so he gets high in the tent again. And he has all these <laughs> visions of of very bad things happening. Lots of yeah. like dripping blood. Lots of people fighting each other and killing. And at the same time, so the way the movie does it is it kind of cuts between this like tent stuff and what's happening with Duke Leto back in the city. Uh, so Duke Leto's in a room uh, in a chair. He's still paralyzed, but now he's conscious. And Baron Harkonnen is there. And, you know, Baron Harkonnen's all like, you know, I beat you. Ha-ha. Now we have Arrakis back, you know. And he says, your concubine is dead. Your son is dead. You know, your, your house is dead, all these things. And uh, Duke Leto starts to whisper. And Baron Harkonnen goes and leans in. And Duke Leto bites on the tooth. The tooth makes the gas and he breathes it out. And then everybody in the room dies. <laughs> right, except that Baron Harkonnen has this uh, flying suit because he's kind of big and heavy. So he's got this artificial garment that make, makes him able to fly. And he. Mm-hmm sadly uh, able to fly away mm-hmm. and, and yep. live. But his other serpents, including his mentat, whose name we don't find out in the movie, but he makes, uh, he has a name in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, before this happens, he also kills the doctor. He says, yeah. you promise me I can join my wife. He says, of course you can. And he slits his throat. So, so there were no the very nice. So the, in case you didn't notice, Harkonnen's bad guys. Definitely bad guys. Not good. Um, okay, so let me see my notes. Well, then what happens was when they get out of the tent, they see ornithopter land near them, and it's uh, Duncan. Right. And then they're able to get... Um, the uh, planetologist. 
yes, Duncan picks up the planetologist. They meet up with Jessica and Paul and they bring them to like this like old building that was like originally supposed to help something. It was supposed something. to be a lab. So what, what, what they, she said and what seemed to imply is that they were going to like terraform the planet to convert it into, you know, paradise kind of plants and water and everything else. But then somebody discovered the spice and they said, and, I would rather have spice. Yeah, said, oh, but spice <laughs> is good. But spice seems like a good thing. We're going to just not do any of that. Um, well, actually, there's a scene there, like, you know, so they meet up with some Fremen and there's kind of staying in this, this building. And there's a scene where a couple of Fremen are having uh, coffee. And this is what, something we would find disgusting, but they all, you know, spit into the cup because yeah. that was actually spitting on somebody was honorable because you were sharing your body's water. Sharing your body's water. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross i thought it was gross but i get it it's, it's but uh, i know that um, in arab cultures being a host is very important mm -hmm. and one of the things you do when you host you sell people tea or coffee even when you're mm -hmm. in the desert and you have to share whatever little water you have mm -hmm. so that, that was very much from that that kind of culture oh interesting well they're having they're having the nice coffee but they get interrupted Right. They so to... they get discovered by the, what was the name of the, Sardukar? Sardukar, yeah. Sardukar was the emperor's army. And basically, there's some escape paths where Jessica, Paul, and uh, Kyles, the plantologist, are able to escape. And Duncan uh, kind of stays behind to hold off, hold off the Sardukar for mm -hmm. a while and he eventually gets killed yeah he it's a really cool fight scene and he gets a, he gets a lot of them he kills he a lot of them, them yeah. before he goes uh, down uh so yeah so i mean the important thing about that is we didn't mention this before but earlier in the movie paul describes having had a dream of duncan's death on arrakis and then duncan dies on arrakis in the same way and we're showed the same shots Right. So the, the movie is kind of establishing for us that Paul sees the future in these dreams, right. but that also kind of gets an interesting spin uh, in the last scene. So we'll get, and we'll get to that. Well, he also, um, you know, he, this is kind of comes throughout where he has these visions or dreams, but they're not exactly quite right. Right. So right. like yeah. he, before they leave uh, Cal, uh, Caledon. Caledon, Caledon. Yeah. Uh, he tells uh, Duncan, you know, can I come with you? Because he, Duncan, went as a head early party to go prepare uh, for the arrival. He says, "I, you know, if I, I'm afraid if I don't go with you, you'll you'll be dead." Mm. And he just laughs at him. You know, Duncan laughs at him. But so yes, he did become he he did die fighting on Doom. <laughs> Arrakis. Arrakis. Yeah. Arrakis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but not quite in the same in sequence or not quite you know. The vision is kind of that is the same shot that they show, right? Right. So it's he dies, not but but Paul misinterpreted it. Paul thought if I was there, you wouldn't have died. But actually, because Paul was there, Duncan died. So yeah, no, it's interesting. But but the visions get more interesting towards the end. But we'll we'll get to that in a minute. So Paul so then, and yeah, Paul and Jessica, you know, Kyle said, you run, they come, you know, they run away and uh, go through these passages, and that there's uh, split in passages, and Kyle said, You go this way. There's mm -hmm. an ornithopter at the end of this, well, just take it. 
and there was a storm brewing, like, like a storm, big sandstorm. So it's flying through the storm, and nobody can follow you into it. It says climb up high, and it's not as bad. And Kyle's goes in the other thing. It says, I'm a friend, and I can, I can, I can, yeah, the desert. And so she, she actually goes off and seems like she's going to go try to ride a worm, which is like the coolest thing. But she gets caught by the, um, the, Sard- the remaining Sardoker soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the paths split, there was like a left path and a right path. So I guess those soldiers just ha- like happened to take their own well, they're path. Well, probably but it's just the Paul and Jessica are able to get into the ornithopter. And, and yeah, and they get away. So she, the, the, the planetologist gets killed and then Paul and Jessica get away. And this is also one of my favorite scenes of the movie where they fly into the storm because they fly into the storm and there's like some visions about like, you know, you have to go with the flow of life or some such bullshit and with the, the philosophy of doing, which is fine. But what I love about the scene is that Paul is the one flying and his mom is in the passenger seat. And the whole time he's flying, she's like just grabbing on to different parts of inside of the of the ornithopter, kind of like when you're driving, your mom's like grabs onto the handle of the car. Like the whole time, she's just like grabbing different parts. And there's literally a part when he's flying, and she starts saying, she starts like chanting to herself with her little phrase, like, "I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer." <laughs> she's like trying to calm herself down while her son is driving. <laughs> and I just think it's so funny. So eventually, they crash land out of the. Of the, of the storm in the desert and they told them you know once you get out of this just find a fremen and so they crash in the desert and they try to um, find the fremen so they, you know, they put on the still suits and they have to walk from like rock outcrop to rock outcrop because the rock, rock outcrops are like like islands in the ocean of sand right and they uh they have to walk so the fremen walk a special way to not make rhythmic steps to not attract worms. And that was one of the, what that was the TikTok dance that Paul had watched earlier. Right. And so he says, look, mom, I learned this online. Like, this is how you do it. And then he showed her. <laughs> <laughs> and so they start walking through the desert. <laughs> uh, but they don't do that good a job because they end up attracting a worm at some point. And there's that, that's a, like the best worm scene in the whole movie where they're being yeah. chased by this worm. And basically make it to this um, outcrop. But there's like this great scene where you see, in, I mean, the one kind of comes up and you see it actually looking at them. Well, looking doesn't have eyes. So I don't, know, I don't know. I was perceiving them. But you can see how huge it is. It's like, you know, I don't know, like 10 stories high or something. And then oh, it, boy, yeah, it's huge. Uh, falls back into the sand. That The sand is, acts like waves of water hitting mm-hmm. against the shore. It's really cool. It's a really like in, in terms of the visuals, that's definitely one of like the best visuals in the in the whole movie, especially seeing it like in the theaters on a big screen. Like that's why that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to the theater and see it because I, I knew these these shots would be in it, which is just so, so good. Such a good choice by whoever made that decision making the movie. And then um, they turn around and whoopsie do they're surrounded by Fremen. And so there's some, the Fremen saying, oh, look, we have some water. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, neat, some people we can drink. <laughs> so, you know, Jessica says, no, no, get us off world. We, we have connections. We can give you lots of stuff. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we heard it all. Mm-hmm. And the leader of them is actually somebody we forgot to mention, but he came to see the Atreides when they first arrived. 
mm-hmm. what's his name? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't understand him. Kilgar. Yeah. And so he tries to uh, do something to Jessica, but Jessica is the Bene Gesserit, so she basically does some crazy moves and, and gets his knife against his throat. So, mm-hmm. so he says, oh, okay, okay. I was He's on. like, no. He's like, cool, cool. I was just playing. I was just playing. Cool, cool. We're cool. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll bring it to our, our camp, you know, uh, to our siege. Mm-hmm. Is that what they called it? Siege, yeah. Siege. Yep. To our siege, and, and we'll decide what to do then. So everybody says, okay, there's always one guy. <laughs> this one guy is just like, no, I don't accept them. I, you know, right. I, I won't. For some vague, vague plot reason, because then because I read the script, I won't accept them. And I must fight them to the death. No, no. He says, you know, Stilgar, you, you're the terrible leader. A woman bested you. Mm-hmm. So so I want to, you know, fight you or something or, or fight her. And he says, you can't fight a woman. He says, well, who's going to be her champion? So Paul volunteers, naturally. Yeah. So this is the part where his visions get really interesting because he has a vision of the fight before the fight happens. And in his vision, he dies, Paul dies, Paul gets stabbed. But then the fight happens and our main character is not stabbed and does not die in the match. He wins and he kills the other well, guy. He actually tries to not to kill him, right? He says, you know, he, he gets him basically knocked to his throat, says, do you, do you give up? And, and Sting says, no, this is, there's no giving up. Yeah. <laughs> says, do you yield? Yeah. There's no yield. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So Paul ends up killing him. So that's kind of, that's our first example of Paul seeing the future and then changing the future from knowing what it's supposed to be and knowing like the moves the guy was going to make and stuff. So that's kind of an interesting, it's the first time in the movie that we get that. So it's an interesting bit. Um, Of course he meets uh, the girl who lends him his knife. Oh yeah, he meets Chani and she's like, here, I have a super special knife and and why are you looking at me like that? You know, uh, you look very and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they successfully, you know, he kills this guy. Somehow, killing part of their tribe makes them like him more. Then they're like, "Okay, cool. We'll bring you. We'll bring you home." And then the they, interesting uh, thing was that they wrapped the body because they want to preserve the body's water. Yeah, yeah. They're gonna ooh, ew, gross. And then the last scene, they're kind of walking across the desert. I don't know if you noticed. I noticed that the second time I watched the movie is there somebody riding a worm on the horizon. Yeah, there's a worm rider. Yeah, which is really cool. That's one of the really cool parts of Dune. So that's the plot. That was our nice short summary um, of the plot <laughs> of Dune. Uh, I have thoughts and feelings about it. So I think I actually hit most of my notes so I don't have too much more on this. I, again, I thought, I, you know, I thought it was a very good movie. It's from my memory it seemed like a very faithful adaptation. Do you think so as well? Yeah, I, I followed the plot. And in fact, um, I had forgotten the bit about uh, when they first escaped and met Duncan. I, I assumed they were going to go into the storm right away. And I forgot about that part. So I think that's good that it was, you know, the, the book itself is well-structured and is a pretty strong story. So I think that, you know, being faithful to it and, ad- you know, adapting it um, pretty much as straight as they could was a, a good choice overall because the movie is like really like really good in a lot of ways and doesn't have any like really glaring obvious problems 
I get to be, I get to be in a position where now I can overanalyze it and find other problems with it, which is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> so one of the things I was thinking about, and I, so I haven't read any other articles reviewing Dune like you, I didn't want to get tainted, yeah. but I've seen a couple of headlines and the primary complaint I've been seeing, and it was something I was thinking about also, and you and I actually talked about it a little bit after we saw the movie. The movie itself is great, and the movie's well-written and faithful to the book. I kind of question whether this is a story that in 2021 is still worth adapting, that I think there's some problems with the underlying Dune story that maybe worked in, when did you say it was written? 1965? Right you know, worked better in 1965 than they necessarily do in 2021. And with minor changes to an adaptation for a modern audience, I think may have gone better. So for example, the biggest one being, you know, this is like rich white boy goes to country with people of color, you know, does hard drugs and becomes profit, right? Like it's a very white savory kind of story yeah but the people who are saving are all blue-eyed <laughs> it's a very white savory kind of story well it's and it, it's, it's a, a very messiah savior kind of a story now this is well a- but it's 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 you know even when i was younger and i read dune it always kind of confused me that a, that a culture's messiah would come from outside of that culture and so it's weird that that would happen and I don't think that's necessarily a bad story or a story not worth telling. I just wonder if now in 2021, it's kind of a tired story. And it's kind of like- Well, I mean, that occurs so much throughout uh, mythology and, and, and history, not history, but, you know, many books you know, and, and the Bible, New, New Testament being the kind of pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Since I've just gone through all the Greek mythology, it uh, happens in Greek mythology a lot. You know, Zeus comes down and uh, creates a hero with assistance from some woman that he thought mm. was cute. And, <laughs> and the hero is a hero and does all kinds of interesting things. Yeah, so I mean, I wonder, you know, I, I don't remember off the top of my head in doing, so in the book, in the text, the, is House Atreides described as being like white skin? Are they described as being oh. lighter skin? Did, yeah. I don't, that's what I thought. I didn't think they had a particular description. So, you know, by casting actors and actresses for the Atreides roles that are white actors, you kind of in, introduce this, this stereotype that is not necessarily present in the underlying text. And I wonder about that decision because that was an adaptational decision. They had to cast someone to be Paul, they had to cast someone to be Jessica. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why... Well, could, it's, why it's could funny. it not have been? Why could it not have been? Why couldn't Jessica and Paul have been black, for example, or yeah. any other non-white race? Right? Like, wouldn't that have gotten you to the same point? They're still different from the Fremen. The Fremen had the science fiction glowing blue eyes. So, you know, what? Why was that sort of like? I guess the default choice. And I wonder if that was the best choice. I wonder if the better choice wouldn't have been to diversify the cast more. And they did oh, very well in terms of diversity learn. overall, but your but your main your your main Wonder Boy prophet with the magical powers is still a young white man, right? And it's like I've seen that. It's not that it's necessarily bad. It's not innately bad. It's just that I've seen that before. I've I watched eight Harry Potter movies about that, 
right? Like it's, it had, yeah. we've done it. And I, it's like, I think that it could have been thought of more outside the box to maybe well, I mean, elevate the movie. This is like, you know, doing Lord of the Rings or something where there is a, a, a book with a long, long following and people had ideas what, uh, what things should look like. I remember I told you I saw a graphic novel of the Dune and mm-hmm. bookstore recently and that was kind of interesting. I don't, I don't really read graphic novels anymore. But mm-hmm. I just think it's, you know, something Lord of the Rings is actually an interesting one because the Lord of the Rings had a lot of really bad racial implications in it. And there was a lot of like, you know, the, the bad race is all dark. And look at the, the wonderful, graceful elves who live forever are all the whitest people possible. And that's the trope that's played on in A Song of Ice and Fire. Actually, you know, and, so, and, and, uh, and Lord of the Rings, somebody pointed out, orcs were the ones who were most productive. And, and, and you know, they build things and they had factories and, and not just hang out and smoke weed. Lord of the Rings has a, a lot. I mean, that's a whole other podcast we to talk about. Yeah, not, that's, yeah. <laughs> That's not good but, <laughs> but I mean, I think that this is something that's present in fantasy and science fiction is that you have, I mean, just because you have a lot of, a lot of science fiction and a lot of fantasy is written by right. white male authors. So you come in with this oh, assumption it that you're, it's, it's less, yeah, so. now it's diversifying, which is great, but you have, you know, your classic Lord of the Rings, which set up a lot of these archetypes for fantasy had a point of view that unfortunately had bad had bad implications well, attached to it. So you probably haven't watched any of the foundation. I you mean the books? I read found you one read of the, the books. I mean, but there's yeah. a TV show now. Oh, there is. Foundation. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it has very little to do with the book, but the cast is much more diverse as you would like, and, and main characters are not white. Mm-hmm. I think that's problem. good. I I think it just. I found it difficult watching Dune to be that interested in Paul. I was primarily interested in Jessica mm-hmm. and, and I was really interested in Channing, but I, I wasn't, Paul wasn't interesting. It was very, it, he felt very, it just felt repetitive. Like I've seen it before. We've done this. I've had. Well, well, I mean, that, that's what Dune is. So the, the, the interesting thing is, do you think that character of Paul is, is, is good or what he's going to be doing is good or bad? I don't know. I think that's that's going to be a question that's for a after the second two, movie. Yeah. yeah, but that's a really good question. You know, right. well, is you know what are the implications of coming to you know being an outworlder, coming to a world, integrating yourself into the culture, and then ruling that culture? You know, that, that that's the problem. That is the white savior trope in action, and this is a story that's so rewarding that behavior. I guess would be the best way to put it without spoiling too much about the second half. Uh, but it's, that's, that's the right question to ask. I don't know that I have an answer, but that's definitely right. the right question to ask. But I think that the, the movie I felt, even with my, my nitpicking, uh, I felt was very successful and I thought it did what it set out to do. I do think we need to, with, with media, particularly with adaptations, think about why we adapt things certain ways and if we can adapt them differently. Because... You know, I'll give you an example. So in fiction, you know, nothing needs to happen. It's fake. It's fiction. So if you read the underlying text and something in the underlying text that no longer works in your adaptation, it's okay to remove it. And to an extent, it's okay to change it as long as you're not. Right. But then there's you know, critics like you who come and say, 
they're not true to the book. You know, look how they ruined this because as long as you're not and as long as you're not making things like more racist, for example. So like the Game of Thrones adaptation made a song of ice and fire, took all of the the wonderful commentary of a song of ice and fire and just boiled it down to racism, sexism, and homophobia in a bad way. So but, there that can happen too, which is a problem. But like by way of example, I never understood the fight at the end between Paul and the guy. And I've never understood this, this trope that happens in a lot of fantasy and science fiction where like by killing a member of the like uh, of the minority class you're trying to join by killing one of them, you then like gain their respect. That happens a lot in fantasy and science science fiction. It has never made sense to me. It's like, that's, that's your buddy you know, just that's killed. Be, that's because you're a girl. And you don't understand guys, you know, it's like you have to show your dominance by killing, you know, uh, the, the, so the difference between the movie and the book is book is a lot more political. And yeah. I have actually written here a bit, a Bene Gesserit proverb. Mm. And, and let me read it because I really like this. It said, when, when religion and politics travel in the same court, the writers believe nothing can stand in their way. The movements become headlong fast and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacle and forget that a precipice does not show itself to a man in, in such a blind rush until it's too late. Mm. You know, That's so, good. and there's a lot of stuff like that throughout the book. So maybe when we come back to talking about the book again, we should consider some of those things. So he was making a lot of political commentary in this book. And- Oh, definitely. It, I mean, I think the the, I think the book is more successful so far on that commentary. Now we don't have the second half. I think the movie's going to be in two halves, right? Yeah. So we, we don't have the second halves half. Is usually two. Yeah, well, I didn't know if it would be halves or thirds. I don't know. I don't know how they're <laughs> going to split it up. But you know, we don't have the second half yet. So this could be taken care of in the second half potentially. But I think the book is very successful in making that commentary, whereas movies often struggle to make the commentary because you can't have somebody just sit down and be like let me tell you about my politics you know like right, it's right. difficult it's very difficult right. it's not at all an easy task so i'm curious to see how it it plays out but it's different in a visual medium to have you know it's different in a visual medium to have a fight where you have a young white man stabbing a black man to death well, it's he different what he was uh, arab at worst Right. On the screen, he was he was one of the darker oh, men. No, yeah, he, was, he was. You're right. You're right. Yeah, he was, and it's it's different. It, it's different than reading that on the page. Those those things are interpreted differently. It's a, it's a well, different see, visual. What, what, and I don't I don't think I don't my my thing is like when I when we first saw it in the movie theater, I didn't like that scene. Not only because I didn't think it made any sense, but that visual was disturbing to me because of the the culture currently. And the, the violence against people of color. And it was as a viewer, as a modern viewer of media, I didn't like to see it. It didn't make a lot of sense in the story. And I didn't like to see it. And I think that, you know, you could have easily changed that in the adaptation because you could have had the guy yield. I would have never known that in the book he didn't yield and he died. I, you would have just told me in no, the no, show, no. like he beats him it's with the fight. And then they say, that, okay. There's more of that later. So, well, I think that that's the kind of thing that it's not vital to the plot that that kind of stuff happens and i think you could you could creatively find a way to make that work so 
the kind of thing you're talking about, I think Dune probably is too new of a, of a work for, for this to happen. But if you look mm -hmm. at Shakespearean plays, for example, they've mm -hmm. been adapted all kinds of crazy ways. Oh yeah, and definitely. they all all usually work in one way or another. Like I, I think I told you once long time ago, I saw Tempest produced as a Japanese kabuki play. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and it was great. And you know, look at Hamlet or or, or Macbeth. They've been produced in like all kinds of different settings with all mm -hmm. kinds of different ways. So maybe you know, twenty years from now, they'll they'll do that with Dune. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you can you can. You know, by virtue of having to take a book, which is way more complicated and much more detailed and shrink it down to even a two and a half hour movie, you know, that's really shrinking down the book yeah. of Dune, um, even just half of it. You know, you have to make these decisions. And so there are people on the other side of the screen making these choices. And I, that's what I'm, I'm always interested in that. I'm interested in that process. Why are we making these choices? Who is making these choices? You know, I don't what think are the, some of the choices are not necessarily conscious or, or that that thought through you know it's like i agree i think that's i think most of it isn't i think most of it is the book says this let's do it you know i then you get things like with song of ice and fire the creators of game of thrones would talk pretty openly about the, the changes they made and they always were like for for the wrong reasons they were always changing things because they like either didn't understand the text or like thought something was cool like that was it they thought it would be shocking to you. It was bad. Well, I mean, Dune has been around next. for a long time and has kind of a cult following, so it would be hard to mm -hmm. make it too different. I'm going to send you some of the clips from the 1984 version. <laughs> oh, man. But I, no, I mean, I thought the movie overall was excellent. I would say, I mean, I've watched it twice now. I would tell people to go see it. Yeah. I think it was. I Do you think it would be hard to follow, though, without having prior knowledge of the books? probably in a deeper way would be because, I mean, the overall story is pretty straightforward, right? But like, what's the big deal about spice? They don't really explain that, right? They, they may yeah. allude to it somewhere, but we know that's necessary for, by the navigators to, to space travel. They don't really explain navigators at all or very little. Um, so there's a lot of, um, it's like, I guess I, I already know too much for me to, to right it's hard to to watch it and separate it from the background knowledge but yeah. my guess is that most of the people a lot of the people seeing it are are doing people have, who have read dune it's such a staple in science right. fiction right. that i i i can't imagine people who haven't read dune are really gonna are really like yeah i gotta go see it so my my friend at work who i talked to about dune um he yeah. brought his girlfriend to see it and She's a, a very nice person. Uh, I know she's wonderful, but she doesn't, she's not into science fiction and she hasn't read Dune and she fell asleep during it. <laughs> and I'm like, fair enough, fair enough. If you don't really know what's going on and you're not into hard science fiction, this is a difficult movie to watch. It's long, it's complicated. And sure. it's, you know, it's very, it has a very specific target audience. Fortunately, that audience is a big one. But All right, she'll try to wrap it up. I guess. Before midnight. <laughs> Wait, I was worried. I was like, what are they going to talk about? And just like, we're just going to, it's just a movie. What could we possibly say? That always, that always happens to us. Any final thoughts on the first part of Dune? So no, I enjoyed it. And, and I liked watching it twice. I'm curious uh, what the second part would be like. I'm interested to see that with part where he's actually in the desert. That's the, I mean, that's the part of the book that's like, that I really liked. 
Oh, one, one kind of thought I had, um, they keep referring to the desert planet, desert power, etc. But of all those people, those freemen live in a desert all the time and they have nothing else to compare it to. Why they call it desert? You know, it's like fish and water. You know, they don't talk about water. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I don't but, know. Does Arrakis, does Arrakis have any parts of it that aren't desert? There, there's, how could there be people like natives of Arrakis if there's not like some kind of non-desert portion? Well, there's water somewhere. And I think that that's part of the, the secret kind of was alluded to when, when yeah. they talked about uh, planetology stuff. But anyway, so that I, I thought that. I'm, I'm yeah, wondering what uh, like the people who live in the desert, they don't call it desert. It's like, you know, Eskimos have you know, 10 words for snow. They're probably mm -hmm. different, you know, there's probably more than just one word for desert. But yeah, they talked about different kinds of sand. You know, yeah, right. they talked about. I didn't notice the, on the first watch through. The second watch through, I watched with subtitles so I could see like the spellings of everything. And I didn't notice it the first time, but they, when Paul and Jessica get chased by the worm, it's because they're walking on drum sand. And we are never told again, this is a great, a great example of the good exposition of, this, of the movie. They Paul just says, like, oh no, and he like pounds the ground twice with his foot. And you hear kind of like the boom, boom kind of sound. And he goes, it's drum sand. And then they start running. Right. And it's like, you get from that, that the type of sand is causing their footsteps to sound louder, which is attracting the worm that's after them. And it's like, to convey that complicated idea through like that little bit of dialogue and movement, like genius, like the whole movie's like that. It's really, really very impressive because that's difficult. It's very difficult. You don't see that a lot in movies and TV. Okay, we're now, we'll now try to end the podcast. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to us ramble about Dune. Well, thank you for listening to History in Reverse. We'll be back, hopefully, sometime soon with uh, maybe some more Dune content, but some kind of science fiction-y content. And I think that just about wraps us up. Is that right? Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. Bye. Okay, so do you want me to start? So yeah, before we do that, here, here's mm -hmm. a bit for, for our outtakes. Okay. So this is when we're thinking about how to fund this podcast, we're going to have ads. And the kind mm -hmm. of ad you will have is something like this. Has it ever happened to you? I would like tea, Earl Grey, hot. <laughs> and you get pumpkin spice latte. Well... <laughs> Why don't you call O'Brien's replicator and transporter repair and have it fixed? <laughs> <laughs> call O'Brien's. We'll be there at warp speed. <laughs> Ooh, excellent. <laughs>